Hello, my name is Ben, and welcome to the Deconstruct Podcast, a show where we listen critically to the music people know and love, and try to find out what makes it tick. In this first proper episode of Season 2, we're going to be discussing Love, Love, Love by the Mountain Goats. Before we dive in, I just want to briefly talk about why I wanted to talk about this song. Well, firstly, it is a great song. It was introduced to me by famous person John Green, and he was right to do so. It's got a sound that hasn't quite left me. Secondly, applies in a lot of ways the concepts we went to in the previous episode of the podcast. So if you haven't listened to that, then a lot of this isn't going to make sense for someone just getting into music. So go listen to that and then come back to this. Now, that being said, there's some things that need to be discussed if you're a first-time listener to the show. Firstly, since I do this podcast through a podcast network, they have requested that I not use any material I don't have explicit permission to use. And since I'm just a guy doing this out of my bedroom, I have no way to actually get any of those rights. So I'm not going to play any actual music on the show, unless if it's like an instrumental that I play myself. Which is where you, dear listener, come in to play. Throughout the show, I will be telling you places in the song to listen to, and you'll have to go through and listen to those through another program. Then come back and we'll discuss what you just heard. Also, I will be asking you questions about what we just heard, and I want you to give an honest answer, whether in your mind or out loud. And it's okay to just say, I don't know. That's okay. This is a learning environment. It's okay not to know. But before any of that, before we do any diving, I want you to go through this entire track and listen for anything and everything that you can and write it down, whether it be as simple as a stray emotion or describing an instrument's part or even production elements if your ears can pick that up. That being said, I'll give you a few seconds to do that, then come back here when you're done. Okay, so now that hopefully you've done that, let's get into the music. The first section that we're going to be listening to is from 0 minutes and 0 seconds through 0 minutes and 17 seconds. So just go ahead, pull that up, listen to it, and then come back and we'll talk about it. So now that you've listened to this section, I'm pretty sure you can figure out a lot that is going on, but I'm just going to guide you through with a couple of questions. The first two that I'm going to ask you directly are, firstly, what instrument is being played? And secondly, how many chords are there being used? Take a second, figure that out, and when you're ready, keep listening. Well, the answer to the first question, if you know enough popular music from the past 70 or so years, then you'll know that that's an acoustic guitar. And... To the second question, there's only two chords that are really being used in this section. Which then raises the question, how do these two chords relate to each other? And more importantly, how do they drive emotions? Well, if you remember back to the previous episode, you will remember that one of the most fundamental chord relations in the Western world is the relation between the chord built on the fifth scale degree and the chord built on the first dominant to tonic resolution. You'll notice that the two chords I'm playing right now are the chords used in this section, but you may also have a feeling like in the song this isn't resolved when I play it 
there is a finality to it. It is resolved. Now, I ask you, why might that be? Well, for this to be answered, we first need to discuss time in music. The most basic unit of time in music is the pulse, or beat. In almost all music the world over, there's the idea that there's regular points in the song where your body wants to react, and you can find it by tapping your foot along to the song. I don't know why this works, and I'm not sure anybody actually does, but your body does find a way, as it always does. But even though we don't know why, we can know how. And this comes down to when the notes being played happen in time. In this instance, if you tap your foot along to the song, it'll end up going about this fast. You know that it aligns with where the guitar is playing, but you'll notice that it only goes every other strum. So why is that? I'll give you a second. Well, let's try an experiment. Start with this beat, but then try tapping twice as fast. Or twice as slow. It just doesn't work, does it? This right here, this is a good place to have the beat. Now we can divide this pulse, this beat, up into two divisions. So break it in two. Now we have the division, and this is where the guitar is more or less playing. You'll notice that the beat is still there, and we can still feel it. That's why musicians call the division with the beat the strong beat, and the off beat the weaker beat. And if we break it in two again, we can get the subdivision. We're not going to use this division just yet, but just be aware that it's there. Now, when we go back to the beat, you can feel that you can still apply the strong beat, weak beat relation to just the beats. So we can group into two to get one macro beat, which is a name we use for any unit of time bigger than or equal to a beat. Musicians don't have a name for this specific group of just two beats, despite the fact that it's a useful division to define. When a drummer is playing a groove, they're often going to think in this two beat length of time. Then if we combine two of these, we have the maximum amount of time that a musician can reasonably feel as one unit of time without needing more cerebral parts of the brain. We call this as musicians a measure, and the reason that it stops at four is because it approaches the point where humans can't feel a pulse anymore, which is a little under two seconds a beat. And from here, we can chunk these measures into further groups of two to form phrases and verses and whole sections of songs. But just for this one section, let's figure out how time is affecting the feel of where the chord changes. And I'll give you a second to see if you can relate these two concepts. Well, put simply, the stronger the beat is, the more likely the chord there will be a tonic. When I play this... There's no indication of any sort of macro beat, and so our ears will pick the place with the least tension to be a tonic, and so it resolves via an invisible tritone resolution. However, when the beat is introduced, the relationship between the tonic and the strong beat overrides this, and so we interpret this as a tension even though without context is a bit more of a resolution. So when we come back to this chord, 
it sounds like a resolution just by virtue of reversing the voice leading that came to this chord. Now, here's the thing that I've noticed. In each grouping of two beats, it feels as though the first beat is stronger, but if you listen, he's playing the second beat louder than the first. So, where does this mismatch between the stronger beat and the louder beat come from? I'll give you a second. Well, just as much as the beat influences the chords, the chords influence the beat. Almost always, chord changes happen on the stronger beats, since your attention is drawn to those points. And whether a beat is strong acts kind of like the length of lines on a ruler with imperial measurements. The next strongest beat is going to be at the halfway point, the next strongest a quarter of the way, and so on. So if we were to give the beat that he's playing louder the title of the strong beat, then the chord change would need to be on a weak beat, and this upsets the fabric of music time itself. And so our brains interpret louder beats as weaker and a quieter beat as stronger. Thus, beat influences chords and chords influences beats. So now that we've, I think, digested all of the things that there is to talk about here, let's move on to the section from 0 minutes and 17 seconds through 0 minutes and 35 seconds. Well, the first thing about this section is that there is a new chord structure here. So what I want you to do is figure out the relationships between the chords well, and how that works emotionally. I haven't talked about any other sort of chord style yet. Just assume that it's all these tom tonic dominance relationships that we've been working with. A tool that you might use is to write out on one axis time and on another put the chord relationships so that resolving from the dominant to the tonic moves you up. It won't always be a tonic in context, but just imagine that it's out of context and then moving down when it moves away from the tonic. So now hopefully you have some sort of sketch, something sketched out. This is the diagram that I have sketched out. At 0 minutes and 17 seconds, I started at the tonic. Uh, 20 seconds, I moved up to that sort of anti-movement we had in the first bit of the song. By the way, for future reference, if the chord is moving up in this chart, there's a dominant resolving to a tonic, then we'll call it authentic motion. And if it's moving the other way, we'll call it imperfect if it's moving away from the tonic, and plagal if it's moving to the tonic. Then I've moved down at 0 minutes and 22 seconds, further down at 24 seconds, up at 26, up again at 28, then three steps down at 30, then up again at 34, and again at 35. In the last bit, if you were having trouble finding that three-step gap, just remember where the tonic is. That the last three chords are all one step away from each other, and they're resolving to a tonic, and the chord before the gap comes before a tonic. Well, it comes from a tonic, rather. Now, if you look at this graph and remember the relationship between strong and weak points, you can see where that aligns with the chord progression. The weakest bits are where it's just one above or below the tonic, and the next strongest beat comes after one above the tonic. And this makes sense, since it's a resolution that doesn't 
resolve that little tritone there. The next strongest beats are tonics after a dominant, and this makes sense since there is a tritone to be resolved. The strongest of the beats comes at the very end, and this is set up by two resolutions of the dominant to tonics. One bolsters the next. The chord two below the tonic doesn't have strength from resolution, but from the opposite. It has strength because it's stranger than the other chords that surround it. Now, this is the point where we need to talk about melody. I'm going to talk about this more in the future, but for right now, understand that melody in the Western frame of reference centers on how to connect to the chords underneath it. Melodies often take their notes primarily from the chords underneath them, and the notes that aren't often serve a purpose towards the notes that do. Some of these non-chord tones connect a gap between notes more than two steps apart. These we call passing tones since they pass from one note to the next. Others are just adding spice to two of the same note by going up or down in relation to them. These are neighbor tones. They both appear in this first line in the song with fell, neighboring Saul and on. Saul fell on, then his passing to on and sword. On his sword. And all of this is well and good if you're just trying to keep your notes close together and closely related to each other, but the real emotion drivers of melody are where it breaks from this. When the words down the river for a song are sung, you could easily keep the on the same plate as the other notes. Down the river for a song. But having it drop down to for a river for a song really highlights the notes that come after it. Now, you may be wondering, but why those notes? Because surely there are many options of pitch and rhythm that could be chosen. I like to call it the oppression of infinity. But we must understand that there's a natural melodic quality to speaking as it is. There's already pitch and there's already rhythm to it. So if I was just to say the first line, I mean a little bit exaggerated. King Saul fell on his sword when it all went wrong. You can see that it's already close to the, what the melody actually is. King Saul fell on his sword when it all went wrong. So that's how melodies are made in pop songs a lot of time, especially in ballads like this. So now I think we've exhausted this. Then we'll look into the next section, which goes from 0 minutes and 34 seconds, 0 minutes and 52 seconds. Alright, so in this next section, I want to talk about texture. We've pretty much discussed every other aspect, barring some minor details that we'll get to in other sections. So for this section right here, listen through it again and ask what instruments are playing or more broadly, what sounds are being made, what are the ranges they're taking, and what's their dynamics or volume, loud, soft, somewhere in between. Take notes and come back when you're ready. Okay, so first, let's go through what we already know. The guitar. It's not doing anything extraordinarily different than what was going on before, but it's got a range. Let's talk about it. It's it's a bit more down in the bassier registers. The second most obvious thing is this distending line that happens. But if you couldn't quite figure out what's making that noise, that's okay. I'm actually a little unsure myself. I suggest referencing back to the previous episode and listening to the section where we go through the different instrument types and narrowing it down from there. 
I'll give you a few seconds to think of an answer on that one. So, my solution was that this must be an, an electronic synthesized sound. I know of no acoustic bass instrument that has that sort of attack or even soundscape, but I know that I can make this sound if I tried on a synthesizer. I'm not going to go into this just yet, but try to see if you can find anything in the music that you listen to that sounds vaguely like that so you can make some sort of connections into what is making this sound. The next most obvious thing in my book is this smattering of like wind chimes that happen at the start of the section. I'm calling it wind chimes, even though there's probably a better way to describe them. They're probably doing something a bit more sophisticated, but I'm getting the vibes of wooden wind chimes that white people like to put behind their houses. Sorry for white people slander, but eh. if you're listening on headphones, I think the next most obvious thing might be the almost rubbing on fabric rhythm. This... I can't quite do it myself, but it's this very quiet and subtle thing that adds just a little bit of texture and rhythm to the sound. Uh, the next two, I say, can be best heard right at 0 minutes and 35 seconds. Uh, there's a bit of a kick drum style thing that's happening on the beat, and it acts like a kick drum in that you can feel it more than you can hear, especially if you're listening on good speakers. This next thing, I'm not sure what's being made, but right as the vocals are fi finished, it almost feels like the bottom opens up beneath us. That's because there's a sub bass note being held down on lower registers, but it's there's so little content to it that I don't think that there's anything that can be constructively said about what it is. So I'm not going to bother and say that it's just more productive to say that bass happens there. And astute listeners in the audience will be able to hear almost a sort of floor tom drum happening in the same register as the guitar, but a little more centered and a lot quieter happening on the offbeats. And these sort of three percussion-y sort of elements, this sort of thud in the middle or range with the kick and the fabric scraping, I think it's all that needs to remind you of the things that a drummer does. Uh, you can feel it more than you can actually like hear it, if that makes any sense. By and large, this is the sound that def defines the verses going forward, and so there's only a couple little things I want to mention here uh, going forward. Firstly, there's a couple of instrumental things that I think need pointing out. Firstly, at 1 minute and 12 seconds, there's a thing that sounds almost like the piano, but I'm pretty sure it isn't. In fact, I... Hmm. I... While recording, I have a script prepared, and I... I thought it sounded vaguely synthesizer, but then I realized halfway through my sentence that it actually sounds sort of like a harp being plucked out in the air. And I can see how it would also be a synthesizer, but I'm now more of a preference that it's going to sound like a harp. I don't know. Go listen to some harp music. See for yourself. Then at 138, Notice that there's a new melodic line happening that has a quality similar to the guitar that's already being played. And lo and friggin' behold, it's because it is a guitar, just using a bit lighter strings. Uh, as opposed to steel strings, they're using nylon strings here. And at 149, there's a held note in the mid-register, like somewhere around... I think it's very evocative of a French horn, but I don't think it's a French horn, considering that the notes in the line overlap each other more than one instrument can. So, 
that makes me think it's also a synth because a horn is also very easy to replicate the vibe of on most synths. Uh, like I said, we're going to talk about sound synthesis more in the future. The last thing I want to talk about on this show is about the structure of parts of a pop song. The most memorable parts of most pop songs are the chorus. This is a section that's repeated twice or thrice or four times. It happens mostly towards the middle of the song, mostly towards the end. And it's the climax of the energy of the sections of a song. These are surrounded by verses, which provide contrast to the chorus, usually a little bit down lower. Not as memorable, but still needed to pad out a song. Verses and choruses are usually bridged by some interlude material or begin with an introduction as begun with this song. I mean, this song doesn't have a chorus, just the verses and the connective material. Once the ideas of the verses are laid down, well, and the chorus are laid down a couple of times, there's often a bridge or a middle eight that provides contrast and places the verse on a higher level so that by extension the chorus is once again on a higher level. But one interesting thing that they do is morph the connective material into a middle eight. I think that's really cool, but they do it here by continuing the material past what can be reasonably co- be called connective and then bolsters it by slowly but sharing and new elements like new chords and new instruments. And that's pretty much all I want to talk about in this song for now, while we're just getting started. I, I'm also just a little bit burnout. Life happens. So see if you can take these tools and flesh out the details here I didn't talk about, but also apply them to other music you listen to out in the wild. Before I go, I just want you let, to let you know about a few other things that are happening in my life that you can experience. First of all, if you like this song, then give a listen to my new album, Tramway. Track three off that album was heavily inspired by this track that we're listening to, and a link is in the description. I hope to have it on Spotify by the end of the week. Secondly, you can find me on this podcast's host radio station, WICB, Sundays at 12 to 2, Tuesdays at noon, and Saturdays around 4, hosting Beatles, Jazz, and Modern Rock, respectively. Oh, and with that... The show is at an end. My name is Ben, and it's been a time. Stay tuned next week for another episode of the Deconstruct Podcast. Podcast.